Poddo. As you approach East Grinstead on the B2110, hemmed in on all sides by verdant foliage that forms a leafy tunnel into the town, the first thing you might notice, other than an adjustment to the speed limit to a mere 40 mile per hour canter, is a brown sign that says St. Hill Manor. Below that, you'd see the National Trust symbol next to the word Standard. That's Philip Webb's Arts and Crafts House, now open to the public, which Niklaus Pevsner describes as wonderfully relaxed. And you'd be forgiven for assuming that St. Hill Manor is in much the same vein. A Sussex stately home where you can probably take cream tea on the lawn before picking up an overpriced postcard for Granny. Except that's not what St. Hill is. St. Hill is a sacred site. St. Hill is where they experimented to find out if tomatoes have feelings. St. Hill was the home of a religion's prophet. St. Hill is one of the world's premier finishing schools for fundamentalists. For Britain, and for East Grinstead, St. Hill is the home of Scientology. This is the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. When I look at photographs of Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, I can't decide who I think he looks most like. Michael Portillo, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Donald Trump. There's something about his face that is simultaneously both voluptuous and gaunt. He looks rather like an artist's impression of the cannibal king of a post-apocalyptic subterranean race of humanoid monsters. Or perhaps that's just my brain and my impression of Scientology doing too much work there. At a point, do all men of a certain age become baggy, puffed-out statesmen? Are we socialised into finding gravitas in this sort of heaviness of feature? Or, conversely, is society simply built by men of a certain age and BMI? Anyway, L. Ron Hubbard was born in 1911, in Tilden, Nebraska. Tilden is a city, believe it or not, of fewer than a thousand people. Taking a Google Street View-assisted trip down Tilden's main street is like taking a journey through all my stereotypes about rural middle-class Americana. Maple-lined roads, beige tarmac bungalows, and other buildings that daren't rise more than the story off the ground, and enough churches, Lutheran and Methodist, per capita to reassure Americans that they are God's chosen people, his flock. Not a reference to Hubbard in sight. Of course, the Hubbards had moved to Montana by the time Lafayette Ronald was two. His adult life was fairly itinerant, keen as he was on explorations that took him to places like Puerto Rico and Alaska before his military career began in earnest. But the biography of L. Ron Hubbard is well documented, as are the early years of Scientology. Our concern is what happened in 1959, when a newly minted Hubbard touched down in England. You've probably heard the sort of legends about how he got the house in a poker game or something bizarre, whatever. But the point was, it was a you know a house with a history and, a, and, a, and, it's, and it's got some amazing rooms in it and that kind of thing. But, you know, put it in context, in 1958, suddenly things had gotten very hot for Hubbard in in the United States. Back then, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, was much more serious about cracking down on health quacks. And that's essentially what Dianetics was to begin with, is, you know, Hubbard was making all these health claims that virtually every ailment 
that plagues mankind is psychosomatic. And he had this talking cure. That's the voice of Tony Ortega, an author and blogger who runs the Scientology News Network, The Underground Bunker. Well, the FDA took those kind of claims more seriously back then. Today, you make those kind of claims, you get a TV show. I mean, it's just like completely different. So he was under investigation and it was getting a little hot for him. And that's why he left in 1959. So he comes to England, he gets this estate and he wants to establish and create a reputation. So what he tried to do at first, you know, Thane Hill has these greenhouses. Hubbard was, you know, a dabbler who always proclaimed that he was an expert in whatever he was dabbling in. So overnight, he suddenly became this expert horticulturist, right? And so his first attempt to try to impress the locals actually came from a gardening magazine that came out to visit him. He probably put out the word and he was portraying himself as this slightly eccentric American scientist. See, he was claiming to be a scientist and this gardening magazine sent a reporter out and Hubbard was, was telling this reporter that he was irradiating vegetables in order to make them grow larger. And then he also was investigating the theory that plants could feel, you know, feel pain and that kind of thing. That's where that famous photo of Hubbard with the alligator clips on a tomato comes from. People always say, oh, look, Hubbard was trying to audit a tomato. No, he wasn't. He was trying to convince a local gardening publication that he was a scientist investigating that tomatoes could feel pain. And so, with St. Hill Manor firmly established as Scientology's foothold in Europe, the mainstream association of East Grinstead with alt-religion began. And the more people talked about Scientology, the more they wrote about it or broadcast about it, the more East Grinstead began to stick out like a sore thumb amongst the medically perfect fingers of Southeast England. This was the 1960s and 70s, the era of the Manson family and Jonestown, and all around the world, people were starting to pay attention to the insidious power of cults. Well, I was a sociologist of religion, and I was studying religion and science, or scientists, and how scientists were able to say that science showed the Bible was true, or that the Bible was not true, or you could have sort of paranormal and all sorts of things where they were using science. I got invited to a conference. This was at Lancaster Gate. My husband, he worked for the BBC and looked at their fire and discovered it was the Unification Church, which was being run by a Korean messiah who um, was being investigated by the director of public prosecutions and who brainwashed his followers and uh, was connected with the Korean CIA and everything. So he said, well, you better not go. And I said, well, nothing's going to stop me now. And so I went out of curiosity. And this was back in 1974. Anyway, I got interested and I got even more interested because I met there some very intelligent young people. So that's really how I got interested. That's the voice of Eileen Barker. Eileen is a sociology professor and one of the leading experts on cults. Her 1984 book, The Making of a Mooney, is a seminal text in this area. And she also founded the Information Network Focus on Religious Movements, known as Inform. I was doing my PhD at the time, and I changed it to the brainwashing debate. Then I got in touch with parents and people who were opposed to the Unification Church, and then the parents of other groups, the Hare Krishna 
Scientology, etc., etc., and it just sort of growed like topsy. So that's how I got into it, and somehow I just thought it was going to be temporary, but it hasn't been. So here I am, hundred years later, still studying, fascinated, and interviewing grandchildren of the people I interviewed in the seventies. So that was in the seventies. Do you think that our interest in sort of cults and alternative spirituality has become more of a mainstream interest in the years since then? I mean, it feels like it's now a very sort of popular point of curiosity publicly. Well, no. In fact, it was far more in the papers and everybody knew about them in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and they do now. I think 9-11 shoved the cults out as sort of public enemy number one so that it became the Islamicists who were going to blow us all up. What, for you, kind of defines a cult as opposed to, you know, a religion, as opposed to a sect or a schismatic branch? I sort of wondered whether the Scientologists would not say they were a cult, but people would generally say they were a cult, whereas the Mormon church might have been in its early days considered a cult, but seems to have become, you know, a branch of Christianity. Is there a technical definition or is this all very subjective? There are technical definitions, several definitions, because um, social scientists don't always agree with each other. But there's sort of division that's commonly used between church and denomination on the one hand and cult and sect on the other, and cult and sect being those that are in tension with, with society in some way. Well, since the 70s, really, cult has become popularly to mean a religion I don't like. And a lot of scholars studying new religions decided they didn't want to use the word cult because it didn't tell you anything about the movement. It just told you about the speaker. Cult is dangerous because that's immediately putting a flag on it that says these are bad, nasty, dangerous, abuse children, kidnap you, separate you from your family, brainwash you, exploit you, etc., etc., without saying the particular things that particular movements do at a particular time. Before we get into the weeds of this episode, here's a quick glossary of some of the key Scientology-related terms you'll hear popping up. The Sea Organization, or Sea Org, is the hardcore centre of Scientology. Originally something mysterious to do with boats, it's now seen as a small group of super-devout followers who are in very, very deep the e-meter is a device used to audit Scientologists, which is to say, interrogate their spiritual health. The device dates back to the 19th century, though Hubbard claimed to have invented it, and registers something called electrodermal activity. Operationally, it's not too dissimilar to a polygraph test. A suppressive person, or SP, is what Scientology labels people who act against the organization, including many former believers who start to have doubts. Other terminology will be elucidated during the course of this episode, but... If you require any further clarifications, please, for your own good, resist the temptation to find out by joining the church. Scientology in East Grinstead is a big deal. Or, perhaps to choose less misleading phrasing, I should say that Scientology is a big deal in East Grinstead. But the religion has also been a global cultural bogeyman for the best part of 70 years. From Operation Snow White, which saw Hubbard's third wife Mary Sue sent down in a sting on the religion's illegal covert operations, through to the legal battles with the Cult Awareness Network in the 90s, on to the publication in 2013 of Lawrence Wright's book of Scientology criticism, Going Clear. One thing has remained constant. Scientology has got coverage. And it does have a seductive lure. 
mixing the Kool-Aid drinking fanaticism of Jim Jones with genuine Hollywood firepower. Instead of Mormon missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses arriving at your door looking at best like middle managers and at worst like undertakers, people were able to imagine Tom Cruise sliding across their hallway in nothing but a collared shirt and underwear, clutching a pristine copy of Dianetics. So every documentarian, gonzo journalist or investigative reporter has had a crack at Scientology. And for all the grime they've uncovered, the religion has kept bubbling along in its own bizarre way. In the early days, people could reasonably pursue a smoking gun. But decades later, the religion is surrounded by more smoking guns than the OK Corral, and it wears that like armour. If you're still willing to become a Scientologist in 2020, you're really not interested in what generations of journalists have unearthed about the cult. So is there something lazy about even discussing the Scientologists of East Grinstead? Is this just the podcast equivalent of clickbait? A lowest common denominator approach that falls back on the frisson of excitement people still derive from hearing about something so quintessentially weird? I think weird is like a sort of, it's a shallow, that's a shallow word. Scientology's fascinating, I mean, it's fascinating. That's the voice of John Ronson, a journalist and author who's tackled many groups at the fringes of the normal human experience. And that led to him falling in with the Scientologists in his 2011 book, The Psychopath Test. When I started writing The Psychopath Test, I thought, well, you know, if I'm looking at psychiatry, I should also be looking at anti-psychiatry. So I started researching and I came across this group called the CCHR, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. So I met their British deputy head, a guy called Brian Daniels. And at some point I figured out that the CCHR is a branch of Scientology. It felt, if anything, a little unoriginal to do something on Scientology. The reason was when I was having lunch with Brian, he told me this incredible story. And the story was that there was a guy at Broadmoor who had faked madness. I think he said it was like a real life McMurphy from One Full Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This guy had faked madness to get out of a prison sentence, but he faked it too well. And now he was stuck in, now he was in Broadmoor and nobody would believe that he was sane. And I just thought, well, that, what, you know, what a story. So I said, well, can you get me into Broadmoor to to meet this guy? And uh, Brian said, sure. So Brian did all the uh, bureaucracy for me and uh, got me into Broadmoor. It was Tony and Broadmoor was, for me, the exciting story, not so much Scientology. My sort of fear is that Scientology documentaries are a bit like sort of Churchill biopics and sort of we've had all we need. (laughs) Or lovely journalists who are sent by the London Evening Standard to go to the Paris fashion shows. That's another staple of uh, cliche journalism. But I don't think that's true about Scientology. What I do think is true, like, I love Louis Thoreau, I think he's brilliant, but I do think it is limited to just prod a hornet's nest, you know? If you want to do Scientology just because you want to prod a hornet's nest and get people to behave eccentrically, and, and the whole point of it is to express some sort of moral superiority over them because we're not as weird as they are, that's a bad story. I wouldn't do that story. But if you're curious and interested, then there's a there's myriad amazing stories to be done within the world of Scientology. So let's do it. Let's look at what it means to be a British Scientologist, what it feels like to grow up as a Hollywood Hubbardite in Ditchwater Dull, East Grinstead. Charlotte Greenwood was raised in East Grinstead, having moved there from Birmingham as a kid in order to attend the town's Scientology school, Greenfields. This is her story. My dad um, was, I, I met someone on the street selling a book in the 80s. 
So he started getting into it then. Then we moved to Cyprus, where there wasn't any Scientology at all. Then once we moved back to the UK, when I was about nine, they then got back into it in Birmingham, which was the nearest altar. For my dad, it was very much like he'd come from very like working class, one of six Birmingham background. And I think it was the 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 selling of uh, changing your life, you know, being able to sort of make something of it. And he'd always been quite a sort of spiritual person as well. So I think that appealed to him on that level as well. And so what kind of made them take the kind of, I guess it's a step up in terms of your commitment to the belief system to move to East Grinstead and sort of become part of the central community in the UK? Because I was a kid at the time, so I wasn't really involved in their decision outside of it. Most of the decision was really because this is like the Mecca in England. And I think just getting further into the community was, was the appeal. Um, St. Kim was like the main centre for the UK. And the school as well, they wanted us to go to Scientology school. We bought a house here, so we had quite a nice, you know, middle class house here. We went to the school. We'd grown up in the Air Force, so we were quite used to like that sort of community style living already. I mean, what was the dynamic between the Scientologists and non-Scientologists at the school? It didn't. It didn't make a difference. It was. It was a really good example of kids not caring about differences. Really, you you knew who were the Scientologists and who weren't. Like you knew when people came up, they're not. But no one cared. We obviously were being taught with the study technology and everyone around us were Scientologists, but the Scientology part of it wasn't really a big, massive part of our lives yet. The school, they try and keep it quite separate. It's only when you get a little bit older, I think, and you start hanging out at the church at the weekends. So you'd go to St. Hill on a Sunday or whatever, and then get into it more that way. And do you recall whether your sort of early thoughts and feelings about the church were positive because you know at that point you're a sort of a teenager you start to feel a bit more rebellious were you getting that impulse no not really towards the church so much there's not really any scope for being rebellious against it at that stage it's everyone's so like you know driving that forward and this is a great thing this is amazing everyone's so um love bombing about it and stuff that you i think it's only later that most people sort of get there is some you know, if you were one of the naughty kids, which I was, and most of my friends were, you do get in trouble with the church for drinking or kissing boys or whatever. Um, and you have to go and do um, overt and withholds where you confess your sins, basically. There were some kids, the boarding kids at our school, spoke to joint one New Year's and uh, the school found out about it. They were all expelled for a week, sent to St. Hill for confessionals, basically. That was the first time I ever saw the crossover, really, of, of church and school. I was recruited for one of the, like, higher organizations that you have to have certain done certain things basically to qualify so I joined the church and started on what's called the estates project course which is like the training camp that you do it's like a boot camp basically that everyone does when they start there and one of the things was um had you ever taken drugs and I told yes I smoked a joint once and okay well you're not qualified then then I had to sit through I think it took me about three months to get through my confessional I'd spend every day locked in a room with some dude while I confessed all my sins on the on the e-meter so at what point did you join the Sea Org? 15. 15. And, then, and that's when it became a bit more serious. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's extremely intense, yeah. You, um, you're not allowed to walk anywhere. You have to run. You are not allowed to speak unless you're spoken to. You have to call everyone sir. You do five hours of what's called messed work, hard labour, basically. And then five hours of studying a day. You live in like a, that's your first introduction. It's supposed to be very basic, very boot camp. It's very much like boot camp at the army, basically. You do exercises, you start to learn about the um, military side of the sea org. You learn to assemble a cap that they wear and study about boats because it, the sea org was originally in, on the sea, but obviously has now moved to land. But you still study all about boats and everything like that. So 
and you do those basic courses and then once you graduate from that you can become a Sea Org member properly kind of thing. Did this again trigger a sense of rebellion for you? Were you a bit like this is this is not what I signed up for or this is not what I want to be doing spending my teenage years doing? No because it was really fun and exciting. They they heavily recruit out of Greenfield so pretty much everyone from my age my friend group had joined so it's all of us together the harsh the harshness of it is our parents came and dropped us off dinner every day and we ate dinner in the car with them rather than in the the mess hall and we were told we're not allowed to do that anymore because you don't have a you don't have a family anymore basically this is your first thing and that's not what we do as seal members we don't hang out with our families anymore that was the first time i was like shit this is weird you know and then i had to leave because because i'd smoked that joint and i wasn't eligible for the where they'd recruited me for so I was sent back home for a couple of months, maybe. Um, and I had to do some courses and become a better person. And then I was allowed to reapply. So I went back after a couple of months to go to one of the lower orgs. They're very strict on when you're allowed, like you're not allowed to socialise at all, basically. So you work, you know, 14 hour days and you go back to Crowborough where they all live and they have security running around chasing you, making sure no one's hanging out or anything. Got into this boy, kissed him. Then we both confessed the next day because the intense weight of our uh, misdeeds so heavy and then they were like oh well you've got 24 hours to go basically i was like where?" <laughs> mm. so why did you and this guy confess you must have known what the punishment was going to be because confession is such an inbuilt part of you at that point and they put you on the e-meter anyway a lot so it's going to come up at some point at this point you would quite like to leave really you know i've been there for three years really intense so when they said oh you have to go because we consider you too much of a risk, basically. It was, a bit, it was exciting, really. A bit overwhelming, because having 24 hours to sort of, you know, you don't have a bank account, they keep your passport. I don't know anyone, you know, haven't socialised outside of the church or anything. So there's definitely a sense of excitement with it and a new, you know, scheme things. I borrowed someone's mobile phone and made a few phone calls to like local Scientologists. I managed to find a room with a family. So I went and stayed there for a little bit. My mum wasn't supposed to, but took the afternoon off just ran away with me for the afternoon to buy me some clothes, help me open a bank account, try and sort me out a job and stuff. So she had maybe, we had maybe six hours together to try and prepare. <laughs> um, and then she went back after that. Like when I left, I basically um, hooked up with a group of guys that had all grown up as in the same thing. Their parents are all in the Sea Org. It was a bit like the Lost Boys sort of thing. There were like eight of us living in some dingy flat somewhere. And they were all sort of like a bit on the outcast side you know not really considered good people they were the ones that were drinking and partying and all that kind of thing but I still really believed in it I still believed that if I googled Scientology I would die if I found out the secret of you know AT3 still believe they might be able to look at what I'm looking at on the internet and stuff like that so I still very much sort of believe they had that power over me so it was only when I was about probably 23 24 that I fully was like this is bullshit like I'm out and done because my family was still in the Sea Org and if it was known that I was against Scientology I wouldn't be allowed to talk to them anymore so I had to be very careful about what I said and to who now that they've all left I don't care anymore so I can be quite vocal about it when you hear it all kind of compressed into a sort of 10 minute story I know. it just sounds like yeah. so fucking stressful and so claustrophobic <laughs> did you feel that in the time did it feel like so oppressive or did it all happen actually so gradually that it it's, it's difficult to say really because I haven't known anything else so now in retrospect yes I, I look at it that way but at the time because it was just normal no it just seemed all of it just seemed normal and, and right I would have loved to have gone to uni I, like I left school with no GCSEs which has made it more difficult for me professionally 
and most people talking to me now would never suspect that I'd had a you know strange background like that and you don't feel any PTSD or even but you don't feel like there's no no weird feelings you get driving past St Hill no there is definitely no it's, it's a huge trauma it's a huge trauma I've seen some things that no one should see I've seen people dumped in sewage you know I've been locked in a room for six hours till I confess there's massive amounts of emotional trauma that come with it and take a lot of um, processing I think that's the same for anyone that's come out Perhaps the most noted of East Grinstead's dissident ex-Scientologists, indeed probably Britain's most outspoken critic of the church, is John Atack. John came to St Hill in the 1970s, rising through the ranks before becoming disillusioned and escaping in the 1980s. In 1990, he wrote a book called A Piece of Blue Sky, which is one of the great exposés of the organisation. It was also cited in the divorce proceedings between Jason Lee, Earl from My Name is Earl, and his ex-wife Carmen Llewellyn, after her interest in the book saw her labelled a suppressive person. And I find it pretty cool to speak to the man who, in some ways, brought down the marriage of the human character from Alvin and the Chipmunks. I was 19. I'd come back from a, a dreadful experience in Toulouse. I was playing in a rock band, playing drums, and got there, and there were no gigs. And I almost starved. So uh, when I got home, I found my girlfriend had disappeared and we'd been living together for 15 months and nobody seemed to know where she was. And I got very upset because I was 19. She ended up going off with one of my friends, one of our friends to uh, live in New Zealand, in fact. And I ended up in Scientology, but I wasn't recruited in any way. I, I went to a friend's house. There was a copy of a book called Science of Survival. I picked it up, read it. And um, in my desperation, it, it seemed sensible. It didn't have any of the kind of indwelling little beings or the past lives. It just seemed to be a, a sensible therapy. And you were from the north of England? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I'm from the Midlands. Okay. From Lichfield and Staffordshire originally, and I, I live near Nottingham now. So you kind of picked up this book. You were still living in Lichfield. What's the kind of process that takes you from finding a book, connecting with it in some sense, to actually like living in a kind of complex amongst other Scientologists? I was never a live-in member. I, was, I never worked for them. I did most of the available levels. I did 25 of the then 27 available levels. So I'm operating Thetan to, to level number five. But I somehow never joined up in that way. And consequently, I was never humiliated. I was never abused, which are the things that actually make such groups dangerous you know we can get off into fanciful language about cults or mind control or what have you the reality is that people are screamed at overworked don't see their kids they're in deplorable conditions none of that happened to me in that first period you're in East Grinstead you say that you weren't you obviously weren't a live-in member of mm. the Satan Hill community but were you socializing much with people who were not Scientologists or was it was your landlord a Scientologist? Yes he, he was a member of the Sea Organization and in fact, was uh, sentenced to the Rehabilitation Project Force while I was there, at which point my lift dried up because he was uh, confined to the premises, except for he would sometimes be allowed an hour a week to see his two-year-old child. He basically was the estates manager. There's a guy called Bob Rosenstein. He was an American who, who'd been in the Merchant Navy. And uh, the very proper Englishman, John Chadder, who was his boss, had one day asked him to do something. And um, Bob had dropped his trousers and said, suck this. And that didn't go down very well with John Chatter. So he got two years in the, the prison force, basically. for that. When you were living in, in the house, your landlord was kind of incarcerated. Was this not a bit of a red flag for you? 
Well, he was telling me that he did feel that, that he needed to do this. And in the nine years I was involved, nobody who was on the Rehabilitation Project Force said anything negative. Nobody who was in the SEAL organization told me that they were living on you know, a rice and beans diet month after month after month. You know, it's sort of like the, you know, the way that um, child abuse is covered up within various church organizations. The idea is that you don't want people to know about it, so you keep quiet about it. So the intolerable daily conditions uh, for sea organization members are never spoken of. And really, the only reason I stood up against Scientology was because I felt guilty when I left and started finding these things out that I had been so blind to them, so blinkered. So you must have had quite a sort of abrupt change, I guess, from living with Scientologists to then being, you know, persona non grata, enemy of Scientology. Well, my, my income had, had come from selling my own art. When I left, I went to art college for two years and then made a kind of meagre living for the next four years as an artist. As I say, more than half the membership left. So originally my society, when I left the group, what was ex-Scientologists who most of whom still believed, most of whom considered themselves independent Scientologists. I found that within about three months after leaving, I had gathered enough material about Ron Hubbard to realize that he was a pathological liar. And there was no denying it because you looked at his own statements. You know, he, in 1950 in December, he claims that he had no war wounds. In 1957, he says that he went down to Hollywood at July the 25th and beat up three petty officers and then in 1965 in an issue called My Philosophy he says he was crippled and blinded and incapacitated at the end of World War II. So even without taking into account college records and the thousands of documents that Russell Miller and I dug up about Hubbard's life he contradicts himself. So he was a liar and because a core principle of Scientology is honesty is sanity the road to truth must be trod with true steps. I realized that I couldn't be involved with this anymore and found myself in the middle of the independent movement and unable to shift their view of Hubbard. It didn't matter what I showed them. They still believed in, you know, they were going to achieve these supernatural abilities, which I'd been somehow gulled into believing I could achieve. Charlotte and John's experiences are fairly typical of British Scientologists. Intimidation, alienation, ostracism. It's the lonely road that people the world over walk when they step away from oppressive institutions or oppressive people. Part of the reason I've never been gripped by any special paranoia about Scientology is that I don't fear that I might be susceptible. In almost three decades of life, I've not shown the faintest quiver of interest in even the most bog-standard rich tea biscuit Anglicanism, let alone the mental exoticism required for Dianetics. For example, among Scientology's most basic tenets is the idea that humans are actually an alien race called Thetans, who must go through a process called auditing in order to reveal their repressed memories and uncover their true selves. And you know what? I just don't see myself suddenly waking up one morning with the capacity to believe in that. But there's no doubt that the church itself has had an impact on many of the journalists who've covered it. Yeah, if you if you look at John Sweeney and um, Tommy Davis, you'll see the two of them screaming at each other. It was a very famous moment. Tommy Davis and John Sweeney basically want, you know, looking like they wanted to kill each other. 
You should put a little clip of it in now. I will. I will drop it in now. Okay. Seamlessly. Of my religion and engaging in brainwashing. No, Tommy, you stop it! No, no listen to me! You were not there at the beginning of that interview! You were not there! You did not hear or record all of the interview! Do you understand? Brainwashing is a crime Did you understand? Humanity. You are quoting the in the moment, I was incredibly angry. Now, remember, people would say, well, listen, you had TV cameras with you, but, but we had five cameras on me pretty much all the time. Uh, basically, uh, my producer, Sarah, was shooting the kind of the small camera just in case Bill was changing over and he had um, Bill was the main, our main cameraman and there was at least three cameras from Scientology as a matter of course whenever we interacted with them. So we were always, always filmed all the time. It was weird and creepy. That's the voice of John Sweeney, a veteran broadcaster whose panorama documentary, Scientology and Me, is legendary within the BBC and canonical amongst Scientology watchers. He's also one of the most hardened critics of the church. And, but the problem is after six days, I've become used to it, so used to it. But in the moment, I was genuinely angry because what they were trying to do was to twist um, my anxiety, not to appear to wander too far from due impartiality, the BBC's rules, and in so doing, they had made me appear to disparage this lovely man, John Lonsdale, who stood up to them. He was gay and he'd, he'd been caught for soliciting 10 years before, which was wrong of him and all of that. He's, he's dead now. But, but essentially, I felt he was a good man and he was an admirable man to me. And I didn't really care about his sad sexual indignities of a decade before. And they were seeking to call him a pervert all the time. And they worked and worked. Away. And it got me to a state where I was, I'd ended up slightly disparaging him. And then I thought, no, this is wrong. You weren't there for the beginning of the interview. You were not there for the beginning of the interview. And off I popped. So I was angry in the moment. Then weirdly, I kind of, if you listen to the, the clip, you can hear me calm down in the middle of it. And then I'm angry again, you know, like... I did not mean to do that. I was wrestling with myself. I'm so glad I didn't swear because I think the BBC would have sacked me, nor did I hit anybody, which was great. And the other thing I'm proud of, we were all proud of, we had a great team. We didn't give up. We didn't back down. We stuck to our guns. The Scientologists that you've met in the UK, what's been your impression of the kind of the British church, as it were? Essentially, it's no different. It's a bit like the Borg, the thing in Star Trek, <laughs> that every part of it is a replicant of, of the centre. And the centre is, in my view, they disagree. They think I'm a, some kind of Satan and I'm a bigot and I'm mad. So having said that, I'm a satanic bigoted madman. That's what they say about me. I say but it's a space alien cult. Nearly all Scientologists in Britain live in the East Grinstead area. And that makes East Grinstead one of the most peculiar and, for me, creepy places in Britain. It's certainly, I'd never go uh, on a pub crawl in East Grinstead, I have to say. But it's not just Scientologists whose behaviour can be alarming. The anti-Scientology movement has become extremely vehement and, at times, aggressive. There are plenty of videos of the streets of East Grinstead swarming with activists wearing those horrible V for Vendetta masks. And it's clear that this can be as unsettling to local residents as the Scientologists themselves, who, for all their faults, by and large stay up on the hill and keep themselves to themselves. Is there even something cult-like 
about this behaviour? There certainly is. The British anti-cultists haven't changed that much. The American largest anti-cult movement, which used to be called the American Family Foundation, is now called International Cultic Studies Association. They've changed a lot, but there are still a lot of people who persist in the sort of 1970s story about the brainwashing and the child abuse. The child abuse came later. It sort of almost replaced the brainwashing. Back in 2014, I wrote a piece for Vice magazine, which was optimistically titled Scientology is never going to crack the UK. For the research, as well as St Hill, I went to the Life Improvement Centre on Tottenham Court Road and the rather beautiful church opposite Blackfriars, which opened in 2006. For geographical context, Tom Cruise jumps clean over it during a foot race in 2018's Mission Impossible Fallout. No Scientologist gave me much attention during the writing of that piece, save the ones who I spoke to at the church's various places of business who were universally smiley and polite, almost to the point of stimulating slightly apprehensive chills. But no one within the church followed up on the article in which I had referred to Scientology as a nonsense made-up religion. But then I started getting feedback, and like most of the feedback I've received in my life, not positive feedback, from the readers of a blog called The Underground Bunker, who felt that I'd been sucked in a bit and misrepresented Scientology in the UK as being less of an evil than they perceived it. The Underground Bunker is a very influential Scientology news site, run by a guy called Tony Ortega, who you heard earlier in this podcast. Tony is, I think it's fair to say, one of the organization's most vociferous critics. And now he was on my back too. I, I, I tell you, there was one statement you made that, that I, I wasn't thrilled with. And you, you, you made it sound like nobody in England had heard of Scientology before Tom Cruise. And that bugged me because England actually has this fantastic history of Scientology, especially what happened in the 60s and, and with Snow White and the spying and all that. That felt flipped to me. But I, I went back and looked at your story again, and there's some very good stuff in it. So I hope you don't feel that I criticize it too harshly. Not at all. Not at all. But I, I remember my takeaway, maybe not from you, but maybe more from the commenters, because quite a lot of comments underneath it was uh, some people felt that maybe I was a bit too gentle on some of the Scientologists, you know, who I just bumped into. And they, you know, they all seemed quite nice. And they were, you know, they were sweet. And they just sort of seemed like any sort of evangelical convert. And I sort of don't know what the line to take is, because I, on a human level, I sympathize with people who get sucked into this. And certainly the ex-Scientologists, we're all very sympathetic to, but should we not be sympathetic towards the people currently in there? I try to make the distinction that um, Scientology has a lot of very toxic ideas. Scientology has some very harmful policies, but that Scientologists are, are often people that got into it because they want to help the world. I mean, these are good, you know, these are basically good people. However, I think part of the issue is you have to understand how deeply ingrained it is that a Scientologist cannot level with you about what they're doing, what they're going through. So yes, it's important to respect Scientologists and, and to be friendly with them, but not to be taken in by them. St. Hill looks like a fortress, complete with rather naff crenellations that befit a religion that has been under siege almost from its inception. I used to play rugby next door to the manor at the sports ground that also houses the town's hockey club. Rather bizarrely, East Grinstead is home to a world-class field hockey team. It felt a world apart, but even then, there'd be murmurings about the neighbours, a sort of low-level suspicion that, to a child, made it seem like we might, when retrieving a miskicked conversion, fall victim to these shadowy, unsocialised heathens who possibly ate boy flesh. 
But beyond childhood paranoia, Satan Hill has opened up in recent years. For example, John Ronson found himself invited in by the Scientologists to their glitzy annual gala. All I really remember was like lots of dry ice, the Rolling Stones former manager, lots of like pale colours, blues and so on. Similarly, Eileen Barker even takes field trips of students there. Well, when I was teaching, I'm emeritus now, but when I was teaching, I used to take my students to up to 20 different minority religions. And we'd always go to East Grinstead. We'd pretty well always go to Scientology because that was the one that they were most scared of going to. Quite often we'd go, we'd go to the Mormons in the morning and then um, I'd drive them in bits to um, East Grinstead to the Scientologists. And the Scientologists have got a cafe there so I'd say, well, start eating your lunch so that we don't have to all queue up. Now, the first time we did this, when I arrived with the last batch from the Mormons, they were all sitting there waiting. And I said, well, why haven't you started eating? They said, we wanted you to see the meat first, because <laughs> they had seen a film. And it was Panorama, which had shown Scientologists having put a whole lot of bugs and things through somebody's letterbox. <laughs> and they didn't want to eat anything unless... <laughs> Their teacher would do that first. So anyway, they did all eat in the end. One of the things that has most constantly perplexed enthusiasts for alternative religions is the proximity of the Church of Scientology in East Grinstead to one of Britain's foremost Mormon communities. Now, I'm not a member of the Mormon Church, nor does its dogma strike me as particularly plausible or attractive. But if I were to be seduced into Mormonism, it would be via the role of President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The current President is Russell M. Nelson, who's 97. His predecessor was Thomas S. Monson, who died in 2018 at the age of 90. Before that, it was Gordon B. Hinckley, who snuffed it at a cool 97. And before that, in order and with no exceptions, the list goes Howard W. Hunter, 87, Ezra Taft Benson, 94, Spencer W. Kimball, 90, Harold B. Lee, 74, goddamn pulmonary hemorrhage, Joseph Fielding Smith, 95, David O. Mackay, 96, and so on. If that longevity isn't divinely ordained, I don't know what is. Anyway, the Mormons have two temples here in the UK. One is in Preston, which is the real home of Mormonism on these shores. What East Grinstead is for Scientologists, I suppose. But that was only dedicated in 1998. Their first temple, the misleadingly named London Temple, was dedicated in 1958, just a year before Hubbard purchased St. Hill, on a piece of land in Newchapel, a couple of miles north of East Grinstead. As a Sussex native, I feel about the Mormons calling this the London Temple the way I do about people referring to Gatwick as London Gatwick, which is to say extremely bitter. Okay, so it was going to be somewhere in the London area. You know, that was, the, that was where the mission headquarters was. They wanted to focus on that main population of Britain, of course, was down there. And uh, they'd actually sent church employees out to look for different sites. And they'd already looked at three. And they were very interested in one that was near Wimbledon. And so that was being pursued. And suddenly the estate agent said, here, I think you need to come look at this. And so they came down. It was owned by a widow and her daughter lived there. As soon as President McKay, David M. McKay, saw that site, he switched allegiance and said, yeah, let's pursue this. That's the voice of Peter Fagg, an historian of Mormonism in the UK. So it wasn't a historical site. It wasn't because of any history. It was purely because he just fell in love with the location. The fact that we could recycle the manor house for accommodation. 
you know, just a lovely little kind of historical quaint look of feel. But it had that lovely, what was tennis courts and rose gardens and different things in the back. So it was purely a, just a kind of a, a real estate find. I guess one of the historical quirks then of that moment and something that's probably been a real thorn in the side of the church ever since is that at the same time as that was happening, about, you know, 10 minute drive down the road, L. Ron Hubbard bought St. Hill Manor. Mormonism is a faith of tens of millions of people around the world, but it tends to get lumped in in, in that local area. And I know that just from growing up, they just tend to get lumped in together. I was wondering what, what you thought of that. Well, there's interesting because, I mean, I even though I was born in Canterbury, I was raised mainly in Essex and now I've lived up in uh, Lancashire for 20 years. That's the first time I've heard of that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. So as a local guy, I guess you were aware of it. But for me, coming down and visiting the London Temple, I, I was oblivious so that you've never heard of the Scientology community at St. Hill? Uh, no, I've heard of Scientology. I've seen the reading rooms and stuff around, but I'm, I'm oblivious to that. But whilst Mormonism has never really caught on here in Britain, it's the majority faith in Utah, and there are said to be 50 million of them worldwide. One, Mitt Romney, almost became president. It's the success story that Scientology always dreamed it might be. Nowadays, British Scientology is as niche as it's ever been. The church's official figures put the number of British Scientologists at around 118,000, but many of the organisation's observers put the number much lower. I'm pretty sure there have never been more as many as 5,000 Scientologists in the UK. In the 2011 census, they recorded just over 2,000, and that would have included you know, lots of people who don't want their relatives to know that they don't really like it anymore, but don't want to be disconnected from or shunned. So the numbers have always been fairly small. It's got, I think there are more Jedi, uh, there are more believers in the Jedi religion than in Scientology. That's part of the reason why I sometimes feel like it's cruel or needless to add to the library of material that already exists about the many failings of Scientology. It reminds me a little of when lazy tabloid journalists find one random freak on Twitter imploring the government to deport, say, all New Zealanders, and the next day it's splashed on the front page of the headline proclaiming, Kiwis take flight, or... Gov called to hollow the flesh of kiwis with a spoon. Something like that. So, in a moment of what John Sweeney or Tony Ortega might call weakness, I reach out to an East Grinstead resident called E. Kenneth Eckersley. Ken, as I choose to call him, is 92 years old and has, in his own words, been a follower of Hubbard since 1947, the same year the Marshall Plan was launched. Hello. So you've been a Scientologist for some time. Can you tell me how you first found out about Scientology? I was a reader of science fiction, and I came across Ron Hubbard's work as early as 1947, where he wrote certain articles, and particularly in 1949, when he wrote an article called Dianetics, the Evolution of a Science. What appealed to you about the sort of philosophies of Dianetics and Scientology? Well, of course, it was just in its beginning stages there, but it was quite obviously logical, quite obviously sensible. I'd been a student of all sorts of subjects. I was, at that time, 22 years of age. His writings were the first things that I read that really did make some sense. You must have seen Scientology in Britain from the very first days, the very first members. How have things changed over your decades as a Scientologist? Well, you must remember that Dianetics came before Scientology. Dianetics is a science of the mind. Scientology is a science of the spirit. It was when Hubbard's work 
which proved to be correct, Hubbard's work led him from the mind to the spirit. And so therefore, this was a series of progressive steps which were uh, set in place by logical thinking and experimentation on oneself and uh, research into other people. Did you ever meet L. Ron Hubbard himself? Yes, on two occasions. No, three occasions, I think. And what was he like, if I can ask? Well, <laughs> difficult to say, but the, the main feeling I had was one of fatherliness. In uh, speaking to him, or mainly in his speaking to me, both from the platform and in person, face to face, was this feeling, that the same feeling as I might have for my dad. So you've lived in East Grinstead now for 50, 60 years. Something like that, yes. How would you characterise the relationship between the town itself and the community at St Hill? Well, it's it's been, generally speaking, a good relationship, mainly because um, Mr Hubbard brought, how shall I put it, a sane approach. As to I speak situation. to Ken, I realise that I lack something fundamental that you need in order to hold Scientology to account. Put simply, I don't want to spoil a 92-year-old man's day. Or less altruistically, I dread having the phone slam down on me and dread even more the sight of a car pulling up outside my house and just idling there, the engine humming, no one emerging. So, for all I've heard from guys like John S. and Tony, I can't help but let Ken talk about being a Scientologist as though it is no more interesting or consequential than being a vegetarian or lepidopterist. Maybe that's the East Grinstead in me. The ability to turn away, to live and let live. Or maybe it's cowardice. Or maybe it's both. Sometimes life feels like a haggle for the best price and ease of existence. And, in a way, that's the compromise that East Grinstead has had to make ever since Hubbard rolled up to St Hill. And over the years, the Scientologists in the town haven't taken over. There's no mayor of Dianetics or Tom Cruise statue on the high street, but they have managed to change the perception of East Grinstead. And with the benefit of hindsight, the arrival of this bleached teeth, fake tan cult offered a forking road to locals. Should they take the adversarial path and face being defined by a fractious religious conflict? Or should they take the path of acceptance and be known the world over for being accepting, for not staring? Those were the options. And I may not know what the right choice was, but I do know what the very British choice was. This has been episode two of The Town That's In The Stair, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and incidental music is by George Jennings and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. On this episode, my interviewees were... Tony Ortega, Professor Eileen Barker, John Ronson, Charlotte Greenwood, John Atak, John Sweeney, Peter Fagg, and Ken Exley. This is the second part of a six-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. For further details, visit podopods.com. Mm-hmm.